Welcome to the Future Tech edition of the Finding Genius podcast. Forget frequently asked questions, forget common sense, common knowledge, or Googling for information. How about advice from a genius in their field instead? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are the geniuses of their profession. Richard has made it his life's mission to interview the geniuses of their fields in areas such as AI, 3D printing, quantum computing, blockchain and Bitcoin, and more. Don't miss out on amazing podcasts with geniuses. Review us on iTunes or wherever you listen and go to futuretech.findinggeniuspodcast.com and subscribe today. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Finding Genius podcast series. I have a returning guest. They usually say third time is the charm, but this is the fourth time. I have uh, Sir Dennis Noble, um, extensive, extensive bio. Uh, he's been a physiologist for I think, 60 plus years. Uh, he's contributed many papers and tons of work in the fields of evolutionary biology. And uh, I mean, just tremendous resume. Uh, I've spoken to him again three times before. This is the fourth time. Um, in Dennis's books, he talks about uh, there being no privileged level of causation in biology. So that's what I wanted to ask him about because I'm a little bit weak on what that means. So, uh, Dennis, thanks for coming. My pleasure. Yeah. So, again, uh, this seems to be a statement that recurs quite a bit in your work. What does it mean? And then I'd like to explore it more in depth. I think it's best to start with an actual practical case, which convinced me. I started off, you see, as a good card-carrying reductionist scientist. I thought... Of course, there is a privileged level of causation. It's molecules. It's molecules, molecules, molecules. Um, Jim Watson, the Nobel Prize winner, often said it's all molecules. And he then said the rest is sociology. But now I come to what I did way back, 1960, with a computer, very old-fashioned computer, but very expensive, I tried to reproduce the rhythm of the heart with some differential equations representing the molecular events that I had identified in my research. Now, I thought that was about as reductionist as you could get, not only identifying which molecules were involved, they happened to be sodium, potassium, and then later calcium, and other channels, which are proteins in cell membranes. But then I looked carefully at what I was having to do to solve the equations. You see, you can set up as many differential equations as you like, according to how many proteins, how many lipids, how many other molecules you're trying to represent in a computer model. But there is absolutely no solution to those equations unless you do something very specific, which is to add to those equations what are called the initial conditions, that's the starting situation of each molecule in the model, and what are called the boundary conditions, which is where's the edge of the system you're trying to reproduce. Now, I started asking myself the question, where do those come from? See, they're not in the differential equations themselves. So I came to the conclusion thinking about it, well, it comes from two things. First, 
the actual boundary of the system you're trying to model. If it's a cell, a heart cell, for example, it will be the cell membrane. It's the edge of the cell. If it's um, a matter of the history with which it got into that state, it's what we call the initial conditions. And you have to put all of those in. Otherwise, there's no solution. But what that means is that the cell itself is causing or partially causing what happens. Without that, if you put all of those molecules in a Petri dish and give them as much nutrients as you like, they would not show the rhythm. The rhythm only occurs in something that is constrained by that boundary, the cell membrane. So I thought about that very carefully and I came to the conclusion, well, that's not a reductionist explanation at all. What's happening is that one level is the level of the cell is controlling the molecules inside the cell. Now, that's not surprising. Physicists have known this for absolutely, oh, I don't know, at least 200 years. The gas molecules inside a container are constrained by the container. That's why you can measure a pressure or a volume of the gas. Right, but, but, but unlike a, a container with a gas in it, physicists don't say the, the walls of the container are, you know, uh, deterministically changing how the gas moves. It's, I guess, random or stochastic, supposedly. No, they're, they're wrong. They, 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 they do. The molecules are moving stochastically, but they're bumping into the wall, and so they bounce back, and that is the constraint. Right, but in a biological system such as a cell, it's beyond that, it appears. But, you know, I mean, continue with your thought process. Absolutely right. It's not only that the cell constrains the molecules inside it, but also the tissue in which those cells find themselves constrain the cells. The organs in which those tissues find themselves constrain the tissues. And the system as a whole constrains the organs. Everything is an open system, as we call it in biology. Everything is therefore constrained by its environment. There is no escape from that conclusion. But what about when you go um, within a cell itself? I mean, you have organelles and, you know, at, at, Very, at what point do you go down to where yes. the analogy changes? Very interesting question. You see, yes, the organelles also do their own constraints. So a mitochondrion, which is the energy-producing organelle in a cell, um, that, of course, will constrain the molecules inside that mitochondrion. And the nucleus does the same. It constrains the molecules inside the nucleus. So all boundaries constrain the components that are inside them. I think that's the best way to look at it. And I see no escape from that conclusion. As I said earlier, if you represent all the molecules by as many differential equations as you want to put into your model, there's absolutely no solution to those equations until you put in the constraint of that boundary. That's why it's called the boundary condition. And until you also put in the constraints by the initial state of the system, because Systems can be in different states according to their history. And so both of those, what are called the boundary conditions and the initial conditions, are required for any solution to the equations. So if there's no 
I can see what you're saying. There's no privileged level of causation in, in an organism, but there has to be some directionality. There's, it's the organism is deterministic. It's not just random, and its actions are not random, and its chemistry is not random. Who's, I guess, to put it plainly, who's running the show? That's a lovely question, Rich, because you see, yes, organisms are stochastic. There's no question about that. There's stochasticity at all levels, right down at the micro level with individual molecules or the quantum behavior of those molecules or the simple kinetic energy of the heat that those molecules represent. All of that is stochastic. Now, biology has seen two uses for stochasticity, long word, which just means chance, seen two uses for that. One is that it causes variation at the micro level, which clearly it does. But it does something else. The organism knows how to use that stochasticity. There's an example I give very frequently in my own work, and which was worked out many years ago by the people who study the immune system. The immune system is a lovely example of using stochasticity. What happens is that a new invader, might be a new virus or a new bacterium, arrives and invades the organism. The organism finds that it has not got the DNA to build a protein that can latch onto that virus or bacterium and neutralize it and stop it being an invader of the organism. So what it then does is to send a message to its DNA in the nucleus and what it says, in effect, is change as quickly as possible. In other words, use the stochasticity of natural variation in DNA to generate millions of new DNA sequences. That's exactly what the immune system does. And then out of all of that, there will be the occasional one, which is producing a protein that can latch on to that invader, the new virus or the new bacterium. So what it does in effect is to use stochasticity. It's still chance occurring, but of course the system, the organism as a whole, in this case the immune system, chooses from those random changes that have been thrown up which fit, which produce the protein that will latch on to the invading virus or bacterium, and neutralize it. Now, we don't know exactly how that happens in detail, but what we do know is that the signal to the nucleus does go to the nucleus and ask it to do that. And it does so by a very interesting mechanism. The way in which DNA is reproduced produces lots of errors when it's first reproduced. The cell then has mechanisms for controlling those errors, for correcting them. All you have to do to produce millions of new DNA sequences is to stop that correction mechanism, which cells clearly can do, and the immune system can do. So I think that chance, stochasticity in organisms is not just passively received by the organism so that it provides variation, for example, for different forms of inheritance, it's also actually used by the organism to create 
the new solutions to challenges that the organism faces. The immune system does that all the time. Now, many years ago, one of the people who worked on the immune system moved to looking at the nervous system. And he found, of course, the same kind of process, which is that there is random variation. Electrical events occur in uh, sometimes a fairly regular way, but often in a very random way. And organisms in the same kind of way can use that variation to generate the solutions to the challenge to the organism that it needs. So I think it also operates in the nervous system as well as in the immune system. I would go so far as to say that it's very likely that what I call control of stochasticity, control of the chance variation or harnessing of chance variation occurs, I would guess, almost everywhere in organisms. Where is the source of agency? And is is agency, I don't know, somehow an emergent property of not only cells, but of a tissue, of an organ, of the whole organism? I mean, does it happen at all levels? And is that why there's many levels of causation? That's right. It can happen at any level. Now, you can see this process actually even in physical systems. You don't have to go to biological systems necessarily to see it. When you see a weather formation forming a spiral um, circulating weather system, a tornado, um, what's happening there is that an emergent property has arisen, which is the tornado, and all the molecules that are around in that area are naturally drawn into the spiral motion. The wind is a movement of molecules, obviously, um, but it's part of this spiral um, movement of the molecules. And once that emerges, once that exists, it draws everything else in. I think that's exactly the kind of process that happens in cells, tissues, and organs of the body. Once, through evolution, of course, once something has emerged as a controlling property, sometimes what we call an emergent property, then it takes over. It takes over in causing what the system can do. That's to come back to what I was doing many years ago on heart rhythm, to why the cell surface, the membrane of the cell, is a very important boundary. It controls what comes in and what goes out. And in so doing, it constrains the movements of the molecules inside the cell, even though they still obey the standard equations of molecular motion. So in your example of, um, you know, of a tornado, there is essentially no agency. It's the laws of physics that are causing this emergent property, you know, the tornado. Absolutely. But in life, in living things, what you know, what is causing the uh, the harnessing of stochasticity and how far down does it go in a way? First of all, yes, that's right. First of all, it doesn't have to be conscious agency. Our immune systems do this with the DNA that produces or can code for the proteins that the immune system needs. Our um, immune system does that in a completely unconscious way. We're never consciously aware 
of the fact that the immune system has chosen immunoglobulin X rather than immunoglobulin Y, coded by the relevant DNA for X and Y. But it does so in a way that is, you could say mechanically, I think I'd accept that, the process by which that harnessing can occur. Now, it's a very interesting question to move to the nervous system. Why are some of those events conscious and why are others unconscious? Because we can do the same kind of thing in an unconscious way with our nervous systems. If we are extremely experienced and knowing how to drive our car from work to home, you can often do so without remembering exactly what you did or without being fully conscious of what you did. I mean, the car itself almost drives itself, we sometimes say. But what is actually happening, of course, is that you're so used to that route that you just go along with it and you can be thinking about many other things at the same time. So even in the case of what you might call deliberation within our use of our nervous systems, there can still be almost automatic selection of the right thing to do. In this case, it's through memory, just as a musician remembers how to play a very complicated piece of music. If he hasn't practiced, he can't remember. I know that to my cost because I don't practice enough. So I sometimes get lost in the middle of a piece. But obviously, a really good musician remembers perfectly well. So not all nervous system actions are necessarily deliberated by agency. It's a very interesting question. Why are some things, some actions, deliberated on with agency? And that's, of course, one of the very big questions of what distinguishes some kinds of organisms from others, what distinguishes organisms that are consciously aware and can actually choose which of the options available for action they should uh, follow. However, even though we don't know in detail how all of that works, we know that it does. I'll tell you a little experiment that will illustrate that. Um, it was done by people looking at identical twins, so their DNA is exactly the same, or more or less, there can be small variations in the womb and before birth, but essentially the DNA is the same. What they studied, and this was done more recently, it was first studied about 40 or 50 years ago, but done more recently in a more sophisticated way with larger numbers of pairs of identical twins, they were looking at what happens when one twin decides to be athletic and the other doesn't. That often happens in families. You get one who chooses to be very athletic. You can measure the changes in the RNAs, that's the ribonucleic acid that controls the DNA. You can measure those changes, and they are the changes that enable the athletic brain to produce more muscle protein. So there's no doubt that although we don't know the precise mechanisms all the way down the various levels of causation, although we don't know the precise mechanisms by which all of that works, we know that it happens. There has to be some agency that that does this because, like, you know, I thought about this. So 
yeah, I don't know, 120 billion humans have ever lived, let's say, you know, according yeah. to Wikipedia. Why do almost all of them have, you know, a, one liver instead of two and two kidneys and they're located, you know, in a certain orientation to each other? Um, you know, all of our, <clears throat> we all have, have about two eyes, not one, not three. We don't have eyes on our legs, et cetera. There's so much order to the creation of us. Where is that communicated? Where is that information held? How can that be, for instance, coded in a gene? And how can it exist among so many people over so much time and not have been communicated deliberately between these organisms? Where does that information reside? Yes, that's, that's, none, of it, none of it's random, it seems like. Yes, that's also a very good question. I don't think we really know the full answer to that at all. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about how can an egg cell, after it's been fertilized, develop into the various stages of the first division of the egg cell itself, and then division again to produce four cells, again to produce eight, and so on and so forth, until you get literally hundreds of thousands, and eventually millions and even billions of cells in the organism. One possible answer to that, but it wouldn't be using agency here because this is not conscious. We're not conscious of our development as an embryo. But one possible explanation of that is a well-known physical principle called the breaking of symmetry. Um, the best way, I think, to think about this is to imagine a, a ball on top of a hill. It's a very shallow hill, so the ball can manage to rest at the peak of the hill, at least for a long period of time. Even the slightest wind or nudge to that ball will start it rolling away from its position in the middle, and of course then to accelerate and go faster and faster and eventually go down to the valley. That's a good example of the breaking of symmetry in a physical system. And nearly all physical systems show it. Um, you can see that in the universe. It's not uniform in the way that we think it was when the Big Bang occurred. All sorts of structures formed. And physicists will call this the breaking of symmetry. Now, if you break symmetry, you can begin to have, to come back to development in an organism, you can begin to have a head end and a tail end. And that could be one of the ways in which that eventually develops. Once you've got that, you've got many other things that could be contingent on that development of a head end and a tail end. That is, that is, once you've got that, you can also start to produce the fact that you've got two arms and two legs. But you've raised a very interesting question because that, that doesn't apply to all organs of the body. You have two kidneys, but you've only one heart. <laughs> and, and so it goes on. Two eyes, but only one nose. So Well, it, it, it actually applies across all kinds of organisms. I mean, look at it nature. Does. Exactly. Most so. organisms have two eyes, not three, not one. That's and they're right. usually, they're almost always in the same place. And why is that? that Where is this universal that's right. plan that things follow? I think the best thing to say at the moment is that biologists don't really know. You'll find many embryologists and, uh, and gene-centered people who will tell you, yes, we know, and they will refer to what are called Hox genes or 
genes that work out how things are ordered in the body, but there are very few of those, actually. The, the short answer is that I think this is still one of the big unsolved problems of biology. We can produce explanations like the breaking of symmetry, but that doesn't explain how it works out in detail in embryological development. Now, there are two broad theories of that, as I see it. One is it's all in the genome. If we could read the genetic code essentially completely, we might be able to predict exactly how the organism would develop from the egg to the embryo and then to the adult. Um, I don't think that's possible. And the reason for saying that is back to the constraint by the higher organization. A cell constrains the molecules inside it. The tissues constrain the cells in the tissue and the organs constrain the um, tissues within the organ and so on. Now, that constraint is physical. It's not genetic. It's interesting that physical processes can play a role too. When you watch an embryo develop, you find that it is constrained by the space in which it exists. So the very space in which it exists means that at some point, that ball of cells will have to start turning in on itself. That begins to produce, of course, what we have in almost all vertebrate organisms, which is a, um, a structure which has a tube going through it, which is the intestinal system, and the outside of that tube, which is the rest of the organism. And it's quite possible that just arises from the physical facts that a ball of cells cannot go dividing indefinitely without hitting a boundary. So once again, a boundary can constrain what is happening. But I will readily admit that that's a very general explanation. It's not a specific explanation of why you end up with precisely two eyes and only one nose and only one mouth. But it at least gets you to the point of understanding that it doesn't have to be all in the genome. Yeah, I mean, even even beyond that, it's not just that, let's say I have, you know, again, most people have a liver. It's almost always on the exactly. right side of the person. The pancreas yes. is on the left, across from the liver. Liver exactly. has a certain shape and size. We don't get crazy shapes and sizes of livers usually. I mean, there's just not so many either. factors that are yes. the same over and over and over. You're absolutely right. From? Yes. And the short answer is we don't know. Why do we have two kidneys and only one liver? I don't know. I don't think anybody knows. And in, in, inside of our bodies, I mean, I don't know if you can call it cognition, but the cell itself is a, it's just able to do an amazing set of things. When you look at, let's say, an organ, it's composed of, you know, maybe several cell types, you know, millions and millions of cells. Perhaps the organ itself is able to operate in a certain way and it doesn't have to essentially know what each cell is doing. The cells at their level know in their own microenvironment what they're doing and they have their own set of abilities. But the organ itself somehow, I guess, I don't know. I just don't know where the, it, it's weird. And I don't know how to express this. In our body, it seems there's an allegiance to the whole. You know, we're a holobiont. We're composed of all these things, even bacteria, viruses, et cetera. But 
there's just yeah. yet there's just one allegiance to the whole and it's strange why is that why is it that supposedly our brain cells orchestrate all the other cells why do they have a why is there a hierarchy it seems like yes first of all it doesn't always work if you ask the question what is cancer there are many forms of cancer of course but it's essentially cells breaking out from that adherence to the whole as you put it or um, loyalty to the whole you could say that um, cells that have become sufficiently well to use a phrase that people like Richard Dawkins would use have become sufficiently selfish to reproduce rapidly at the expense of the whole system um, that that is what happens when um, cancer develops and it is a, a reasonably good theory of the development of cancer but you're quite right um, the rest of the system normally must be constrained by the system as a whole that's another aspect of what I call the no privilege level of causality what would happen if you didn't have that would be cancer that's a very blunt way of putting it <laughs> not only would you have the cancer you would also uh, not survive as an individual so it isn't to me very surprising that the evolutionary process has developed ways in which the system as a whole can command loyalty of its components at least most of the time but we have to admit that it sometimes doesn't work and that's when um, the unlimited proliferation that we call a cancer develops but even for the most part the fact that it does work a lot of the time is it's crazy it's amazing it is i agree i you see i think rich to be honest and i i try to have a certain degree of humility about this we actually know very little about biology above the level of the genome we know enormous amount now about um, dna rnas proteins lipids metabolites and so on our knowledge of the detailed biochemistry and molecular biology has increased by leaps and bounds since about 1950 way back in the middle of the last century when molecular biology really got going but at the level of going above all of that to cells we don't know how a cell works we have many discoveries that show for example the cell can control its own dna that it can control the mutation rate in the dna they can control where that change occurs there can be as i explained in the case of the immune system targeted change in the dna but when it comes to understanding the cell as a whole as a system it's at the moment, I think, way beyond us. A simple calculation, there are literally trillions of molecules in a single cell. Now, a single cell is beyond your vision. You need a microscope to see it. And yet, it's still trillions of cells. That's the fact that the molecules themselves are extremely tiny. And in a, in a cell, if I amplified a cell up to the size of my fist um well i'm i'm making this podcast for you 
in Oxford in England, which is near the south of England. Well, the edge of the cell would be way up in Scotland, which is right in the north. I think that's possibly the sort of distance between maybe um, Pennsylvania and the state of Maine. I don't know the, my exact geography. So when it comes to asking the question, do we really understand how so many molecules interact? The answer is not really. We have many good observations on the behavior of the networks of molecules, but the details elude us for a very simple reason. It's just so damn complicated. I mean, even within a single cell, where is the agency? Where is the the brain of the cell, where you know what? Where's the command coming from? That's brilliant as a question. I like it. I don't think it's anywhere now. That that most people will disagree with me. They'll say, "Well, it's in the DNA down in that nucleus." But you see, I've already made the point that many developments in our development as an embryo and then to the adult don't depend just on the DNA. The DNA is extremely important, of course. It's a marvelous database for the production of the proteins that the cell needs and many other forms of regulatory molecules called regulatory RNAs. But we don't really understand the process by which we end up being the human we are or the rat we are or the um, little tiny worms, C. elegans that we might be and so on. That eludes us because it's so terribly complicated. I would ask biologists to be a little bit more, generally speaking, to be a little bit more humble about what we know. We, we know a lot, certainly. Our knowledge has advanced enormously since the first discovery that DNA was the genetic material, but we're still a long way from being to, able to understand how even a single cell works. So when you say that the single cell is, is extraordinary, it has, well, I would say, you could even say that it has a kind of intelligence. I've no idea whether that is conscious intelligence at the level of a single cell. Although when I watch an amoeba, which one of these organisms that can move its um, cell structure around all the time to search for food, for mates, and so on. You know, when you watch it in a video of an amoeba moving around, it looks very intentional. Now, I know that many of my colleagues would say, but that's not real intention, that's not real agency. But then I would ask the question, well, when then did real agency develop? Perhaps... Yes, it wasn't conscious initially, just as our immune systems are not conscious of how we managed to produce the right kind of protein to attack an evading virus or bacterium. But it's still true to say that it's a very intelligent system. I mean, if we use the term artificial intelligence, which we do nowadays about computers and robots, then I think we have to credit cells with an extraordinary degree of intelligence compared to any of the AI systems, that is the artificial intelligence systems that we can produce today. So I would say that if we are prepared to attribute the idea of intelligence to those systems, we should certainly do it to cells, to tissues, organs, and to the organism as a whole. 
But of course, we know that some organisms are conscious and have intentionality, that have agency. Um, but I think, again, as with the question of understanding even a single cell, we have to remember that humility is required here again, because if you ask the question whether anybody really understands consciousness and agency in the sense of intention to do X or Y, then I think I would challenge whether anybody has the right to say they understand that. Yes, we've made a lot of advance in understanding some conscious processes in the nervous system of the what we call higher animals, which we think are undoubtedly conscious in the way that we're conscious. But if you ask the question, what really distinguishes a conscious process from an unconscious process, we don't know. And many of our nervous system processes are unconscious. A reflex, for example, when you move your leg in response to the doctor tapping on your tendon near the knee joint, it's automatic. You don't, you don't control that. But a lot of processes clearly are controlled. I return to the athlete who trains and slowly and progressively changes the RNAs controlling how much muscle um, develops in the athlete, which is why the athlete ends up with muscles that are much bigger than normal. So there's no doubt that with conscious intention, we can do all of that. But what it is in the nervous system enables a process to be conscious rather than not, I don't know. And I think this relates to the other question which you asked, which I liked, which is where in the cell is the intelligence? Is it in the nucleus? Is it all over? Is it in a particular part of the cell? I think it's distributed, and I don't think there is one central controller. Well, I was going to say maybe part of the definition of intelligence is the ability of a system to harness stochasticity to assist its own homeostasis or to accomplish its own goals. I like that. That's a brilliant way of putting it. I think that's the way in which organisms use stochasticity. Exactly. I mean, even, I guess going back to the complexity of the cell, even a ribosome is so hideously complicated. It can produce, what, tens of thousands of different uh, of different molecules and compounds. I mean, even, even that we can't even begin to approach and model and make. Totally. So, so yes. <laughs> we can make I, a cell. I, I think in all of this amazement at the complexity and the intelligence of um, not only organisms, cells, or the components within cells, I totally agree. I think we need to be aware that we're not going to easily work all of this out. I would go even further, too. I referred earlier on to artificial intelligence, which is the ability that we have now as creative humans to make uh, robots and other um, structures that can show a remarkable degree of intelligence. They can beat us at chess, they can produce new um, abstract paintings, they can even produce new music. Um, so they're becoming really quite creative in the sense of being able to copy uh, the style of a Beethoven or a Bach or a Mozart or the painting style of a great artist. So 
what's the difference? And I think that's a very important question. The difference, I think, lies in a very important fact about organisms, their cells, tissues, and organs and systems, which is they're not made of silicon, they're made of water. 70 or 80% of our body is water. <laughs> now, it's very important to understand what that means. It means that unlike a silicon-based robot, our components are moving around all the time. They're not fixed in the way they are in a chip. That gives a very interesting form of stochasticity. It means the system itself is not just experiencing stochasticity, it is itself stochastic. Now, that is true of a water-based system, because all the molecules in a water-based system will be moving around by what we call Brownian motion, which is the motion that occurs naturally as um, molecules move around in a solvent like water. But you see, a silicon-based robot simply can't do that, nor can it harness the stochasticity in the way in which an organism can, because that kind of stochasticity is simply not there. Sure, you can, and many people do this in artificial systems, you can introduce a stochastic um, algorithm to give you the creativity to produce a new, a new piece of art, but that is not produced in exactly the same way as uh, an organism harnesses the stochasticity that naturally occurs in a water-based system. So I would go so far as to say that it may be necessary, if people really want to reproduce um, living organisms, that they may have to copy living organisms. They may have to make them out of water-based systems, in which case you will be constructing cells, tissues, organs, and systems of the body. Um, it's a, it just seems like artificial intelligence, I guess I'd call it like endothermic intelligence. You have to keep putting in energy and effort in order to get it to work. And the second you stop, it stops working. Yes. So, you know, yes, the machine can beat us at chess, but that's only because, again, it was programmed by human hand and mind. And energy is put into it. And you say run. And then when it's yeah, done, you right. take it away. It stops. It has no continuation of itself. Nothing. That's correct. Yes. Yes. But so, living things are not like that. They, no. They're ongoing. They're adaptive. They, it's different. Yes. That, that arises because they're not closed systems. They're not packaged in a box. Um, they're continually interacting with the environment to get that energy. That's, and of course, we get it ultimately from sunlight. If we're plants, we can do that automatically with the photosynthetic reactions that generate energy. Um, if we are organisms, we eat plants and other organisms to do the same. So the difference, I think, is also that we are um, open systems that are interacting with the environment all the time, and necessarily so because we've got to produce the energy that otherwise we would feed to a robot with an energy source like an electricity supply. And that is a very big difference. I have a, again, another probably impossible question. So a little bit different direction. Yeah. If, if life only comes from life, and if you think about, let's say you, essentially you've come from an unbroken chain of 
life forms for you know three and a half billion years exactly yes. but what what is what has been preserved in that in that chain if anything you know the the same cells obviously don't constitute you as far ancestors the same molecules even i mean so what what is it that's been preserved through three and a half billion years that led to you for instance Not a lot is what I would say. First of all, the organisms that existed three and a half billion years ago no longer exist. They wouldn't survive today because we now have an oxygen-filled atmosphere that wasn't there in the beginning because it was actually the development of organisms that generated the oxygen. And so uh, that, of course, has depended on harnessing the energy of the sun Uh, to produce the oxygen. So we no longer have those organisms around. And just to diverge for a moment, that's a reason why I think we have to be very careful what we do when we send spacecraft to Mars, to the moons of Jupiter, or wherever we might send spacecraft, or even humans to, because we may find that life there, if there is any, on Mars or one or other of the moons in the solar system is more resembling the early forms of life on Earth. We can no longer see those because they don't exist anymore. They couldn't exist in our atmosphere. What we do know is that there is a kind of unbroken chain from around the time when um, cells developed with not only metabolic networks, but also the storage of information that we call DNA. Now, I don't think DNA was there at the beginning. It's a very complicated system. It requires pampering. (laughs) You know, its own reproduction error rate is very poor. It's about one in 10,000 base pairs, as they're called, that is the nucleotides. You, in in a genome of three billion base pairs, you would at that rate have hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of errors. So that depends on the cell system being able to itself correct all of those errors. Now, that couldn't have been there at the beginning. And you can see that also from looking at viruses. Viruses, after all, are essentially a piece of DNA, So a sequence of DNA with sometimes a lipid or a protein coat. They can't reproduce. They can't reproduce until they invade, by chance, um, a cell. And then within the cell, the cell can reproduce that DNA. So I actually think the earliest forms of life would not have been just very different from ours in the sense that they couldn't cope with oxygen. They would obviously have been able to cope with nitrogen, but also that they almost certainly did not have DNA at the very beginning. Some people refer to there being what's called an RNA world, which would be just the uh, smaller and more active pieces of nucleotide polymers that can themselves act as catalysts and so form um, networks that can generate energy. Um, That's possible. And it's also possible that no nucleotides at all were present in the earliest forms of life. I think it's going to be extremely interesting when we 
find eventually forms of life, probably very microscopic forms, on Mars or other parts of the solar system, it's going to be very interesting to know, do they have DNA? Do they have RNA? Do they just have metabolic systems? So I think these are big questions. We don't really know the answer. There are scientists working on this. I'll just mention one. Um, Lee Cronin at the University of Glasgow is doing beautiful work on how proteins could have evolved. And he's trying to do that by simple chemistry, which is fantastic. But even he is not doing it with DNA. Okay. Um, I know we're, we're close to being out of time. I guess what I wanted to ask you in conclusion is that um, what do you sense or feel or see is, is near? You know, what new areas of knowledge about biology and evolution do you sense uh, you know, science is close to making a breakthrough in? I think that a genuinely multi-level understanding of organisms will itself generate many new discoveries so I would like to see us open up biological research to more multi-scale, multi-level research, working out how one level, cell, tissue, organ, or whatever it might be, constrains the lower levels. We know that happens, but we don't know exactly how it happens. So we know that organisms harness stochasticity, but the details of that need to be worked out. We know also that organisms that have agency can influence their bodies through choice, conscious choice of what to do, whether to exercise or not. But there's so much more to be discovered in all of that that I, I would recommend any young people aiming to get into biology, well, Look at the multi-scale questions, at the multi-level organizational questions, and see what you could do with that. That's where I think the progress will be made in the future. Well, very good. Dennis, it's, it's always great to talk to you. So well, I had you back so many talk times. to you, Rich, too. I enjoyed this discussion very much. I no, always you. do. <laughs> Yes. Well, I, I try to evolve my knowledge each time I talk to you. So well, you, you do. You ask very good questions today. Yes. Well, well, I'm getting better at asking the impossible questions, I guess. But um, Okay. But you'll see that I didn't answer all the questions. Oh, I know. I know. There's no answer. I don't think anybody can at the moment. You've been listening to the Future Tech Edition of the Finding Genius Podcast. This podcast is information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed. Review us on iTunes or wherever you listen and subscribe today by going to futuretech.findinggeniuspodcast.com.